I think David may have mentioned this when he was leading worship this morning, but, um, you know, we have a tendency to limit the way that God works in our lives, um, maybe to scripture, prayer, and singing together. And the reality is that um, just being with other believers is a huge means of grace. And so it always does my heart good to see um, you loving one another and spending time with one another. All right. So uh, we are going to be taking a look at Ruth chapter 3 today. And so what we have done over the course of the last couple weeks is we've really just sort of unpacked this great story that we find in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. It was written, uh, or, or it happened during the time of the Judges. So if you're familiar with the book of Judges, the theme of the book of Judges is there was no king in the land, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, utter and complete chaos ensued. And so this story of Ruth is happening during that same time period. So basically in chapter 1, what we saw is that uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech Uh, during a time of drought in Israel, moved to Moab, which, by the way, was uh, an enemy nation, right? In order to try to save themselves from this drought and from this famine, they moved to Moab. And uh, while they were there, they married their two boys to these Moabite women, which was, by the way, uh, against the rules. And then what happened was Elimelech died. And then after Elimelech died, the two boys died. And so all of a sudden, Naomi is uh, is really kind of trapped. She's stuck. And she's left um, in Moab with only these two daughters-in-law who are both Moabite women. And so she basically is at the end of her rope, and she says, well, I guess I need to go back home now. And so they start making their way back home. And on the way, Naomi very kindly offers to both of her daughter-in-laws, hey, why don't y'all just go back home? You know, you're still young enough. Your parents will take you in. You'll find other husbands. You'll begin new lives. And Orpah, one of the women, goes, you know what? You're right. (laughs) I'm going to take the safe route. I'm going to go back and try to reclaim my life. But what's interesting is Ruth, who is really the central character of this story, Ruth basically says, you know what? I'm going with you. Your your people are my people. Your God is going to be my God. And so Ruth goes with Naomi back to Judah, back to Bethlehem. And uh, they arrive there, and we talked about this last week a little bit. And Naomi is too old at this point in time to remarry, too old to work in the fields. And so Ruth, this, again, foreigner, this Moabite woman, uh, finds a field to glean in. And, and gleaning was basically where you'd go after a field had been um, completely gone through by the people that owned the field, picking all the wheat, picking all the barley. They would intentionally leave some behind for poor people. And poor people would come along and they would gather up what was left over. And so that's what Ruth was doing. Well, it just so happened that Ruth was doing this in a field that was owned by one of her kinsmen, by this man named Boaz. And Boaz showed her real kindness and real benevolence. It's a great story. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into chapter 3 today, and we're going to kind of continue this story, continue this narrative. And so if you will, you can take a look at the screen, and we're going to be reading the entire chapter of Ruth 3. It's going to be long, but uh, it's like any other good story. You've got to kind of have to read it. So that's what we're going to do. So beginning in, chapter, in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. 
When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you're a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask. All the people of my own town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. If he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, about 12 pounds, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. And that by simply being exposed to your word today and being uh, exposed to your Holy Spirit Father, we believe and we ask you to work in our minds to change the way that we think. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts to change the way that we feel. And Father, we pray that you would do this for your honor um, and for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, quick question. Uh, How many of you grew up in the 80s at all? Anybody? Can you raise your hand really quickly? How many grew up in the 80s? Not not that many. We we have a a young crowd here. That's okay. Um, But... As somebody who my prime era was the 80s, let me tell you a little bit about it really quickly. Okay, During the 80s, there was a lot of big and frosted, blow-dried hair. That was one thing about the 80s, right? There were a lot of skinny jeans, and if you didn't have skinny jeans, you would do what was called pegging your jeans, where you'd kind of roll them up so they were tight on your legs. There were members-only jackets. You know, there were earrings. And that's just the guys, right? I'm, just, I'm not even talking about the girls yet. The guys did all that stuff. And it was just a really interesting time. There was, you know, sort of this new wave of, of music that replaced another wave of music. It was a really interesting era. And uh, today, we're going to be, I'm going to be exposing you to what is arguably one of the better songs of the 1980s that is called I'm Only Human by a group called the Human League. Now, if you haven't ever heard of this group before, it's because I'm joking. They're not actually one of the best bands of the 80s, but they are a band from the 80s. And the song that we're going to listen to today and the video we're going to watch um, is going to give us a little bit of an introduction in today's sermon. So let me turn it over to you, Chase, and enjoy this great video.
I know a lot of you wanted that to keep going, but we got to get on with the sermon. So anyway, but you can see big earrings, right, and hair and all sorts of stuff and like the drama, you know what I mean? Like, can you feel it? You know, they're so earnest in that video. (laughs) Anyway, it's awesome. And what else is amazing about that song is there's actually not an instrument being used. Like there's no instrument. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's all like electronic stuff. Anyway. So that's that song. Anyway, the, the tagline, the chorus of that song you picked up on, it's uh, I'm only human, of flesh and blood I'm made. I'm only human, born to make mistakes. And he's basically the guy who's trying to let himself off the hook for apparently doing something he shouldn't have done. And he's just saying, I'm human, right? I'm given to sin and to error and to brokenness, all this kind of stuff. That's the, the theme of that song. And the reason I use it today is because um, we read the story of Ruth and our tendency is to read the story of Ruth and to see three heroes. That's really our tendency. That's sort of the natural way we read the story of Ruth. And, and essentially, we look at Naomi, and, and, and our, our tendency is to go, you know, Naomi was this wise mother-in-law. She's, she's kind of crafty. Experience has taught her, you know, sort of all these great ways to live life. But we see her as a little bit of a hero. And then we come to Ruth, and we look at Ruth, and we see, you know, she's kind, and she's loving, and she's faithful. And we go, wow, she's awesome. She's great. She's just about perfect. She's a a heroine. And then we look at Boaz and we say, wow, he's benevolent. He's generous. He's brave. He's all these things. But the truth is that the real story of Ruth reveals that each of them really are only human, right? They're fearful. They're sinful. And they're broken, frankly, just like we are. Let's let's jump into this a little bit and I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 of the story of chapter 3 is we see once again that Naomi is really trying to take matters into her own hands. Let me read these verses for you very quickly. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. She's been doing some research. She's been talking. She knows what's happening, right? Verse 3, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him, that is Boaz, know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Okay, let me call time out really quickly here. How does that, how does that advice sound to you? How do those first, yeah, how do those first verse, that's right. So either, I'm telling you, you're hearing this in one of two ways. Either you're hearing those first four verses and you're going, it's the Bible, you know, like it's, it's, the, it's the stuff of storybooks and, and of little, you know, felt boards. Dave Mahan and I talked about this this morning. It's, you know, it's the Bible. And so we read it and our tendency is to go, we don't know what's going on here. We don't understand the cultural thing. We're missing something. But our tendency is to read it optimistically and say, I'm sure this is all in the up and up, right? It's all in the above board. Or the second way that you maybe are reading this story is the reason that some of you chuckled, which was, this sounds awfully suspicious, right? You know, in in the words of Ben Affleck, you're suspect, right? I mean, something sounds like it's not quite on the up and up here. And I'm going to argue for the second. I'm going to argue that that's exactly what Naomi is doing, that she's giving some advice that is not particularly helpful. Let Let me give you some reasons. First of all, this way uh, that she prescribed for Ruth to go and ask Boaz to marry her is not the typical way that you would have asked a kinsman redeemer to redeem you. In fact, 
What was typical was on the, the threshing floor in the time of judges, it was typical for, for prostitutes to be invited onto the threshing floor, right? And, and so it's possible that what Naomi is doing is basically saying, hey, put on perfume, dress up, look good, sneak over to where he is, you know, laying down on the threshing floor at night. And it, it sounds like a form of entrapment, right? That's what it really actually sounds like when you read it. And not only that, but it even harkens back to some degree to Genesis chapter 38, where we read the story of Tamar and, uh, and Judah. And she basically uh, does something in order to get her father-in-law to ultimately act as a kinsman redeemer. It also sounds a little bit like Lot and his daughters. And so there's all sorts of reasons to think that maybe Naomi's advice here isn't all that pure and that maybe it's not all that wholesome. The second thing we see that argues in this, this direction is that listen to what Boaz says in verse 14, right? And we think he tells this to Ruth. He says, it says, so she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. It, 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 essentially what he's saying is, uh, okay, let's keep this on the down low because this looks really bad for both of us, right? If this was the honorable way to go ask somebody to be your kinsman redeemer, then there wouldn't have been any shame involved. But he basically was saying, this does not look good. Not only that, but, but in the Hebrew in which this would have been written, there are actually several different euphemisms used to describe what's going on here to talk about certain types of physical activity, right? And so we kind of miss out on that a little bit because of our particular culture. We don't know Hebrew. We don't know the idioms of the day. But the truth is that the readers of Ruth 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, 3,300 years ago, when they heard this and you, this language used, then all of a sudden their eyes would have gotten wide, their mouths would have dropped a little bit, and the tension in this story and in this setting would have been palpable. Does that make sense? Because basically what's being described here is something is happening that is very risky, very dangerous, and particularly foolish, uh, particularly uh, in light of Naomi's advice. Now, this doesn't necessarily make Naomi evil. It does make her human, and it almost definitely makes her sinful. And essentially what Naomi is doing here is she's saying, look, in the midst of all this chaos, I'm a widow. My sons have died. My husband is gone. All these things are happening. I need to take control. And instead of simply trusting in God, she tries to take matters into her own hands. I think this is exactly what Naomi is doing. Some of you are familiar with Tim Keller. Tim Keller does a great job of basically talking about sin, not as lying, cheating, stealing, but talking about sin as essentially taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. In other words, taking something that's perfectly good and making it the most important thing in your life, even more important than God. And one of the things that he talks about that human beings do is we take control. And for some people, control is their idol. Control is the thing that's more important to them than God. This is what he writes. He says, if you seek control, then you're marked by self-discipline, right? Any self-disciplined people out there? That can be good. It's a good thing. But do you make it an ultimate thing? They're marked by a desire for certainty, Desire for certainty is a good thing, but if you made it an ultimate thing, you have a desire for very measurable standards. That's great. It's good to want to know what's going to be on that test and what you have to be to, you know, do to get an A, but to make it an ultimate thing is dangerous. He then goes on to say that the greatest nightmare of someone for whom control is their idol is uncertainty, right? They're constantly worried about the unknown. They're constantly worried about uncertainty. And people around that live in life with these people often feel condemned, right? They feel like they're constantly being judged. They constantly feel like they don't measure up. And so the question here is, can any of you identify with Naomi? I'm going to guess that you can. 
In fact, I know that there are a lot of people in this room that can. I know there are a lot of people in this room this morning for whom control is frankly the most important thing for you. You you have to control your image. You have to control your life. You have to control everything about it because the risk of not controlling it is that you might end up alone. You might end up unloved. You might end up abandoned if you don't simply take control and try to save yourself. In fact, that's exactly what happens when people um, become controlling, when it becomes the most important thing. It's, It's a way of saving yourself. Unfortunately, if you've ever lived with someone that, is a, that has control as an idol, you understand that it actually introduces chaos. It does the exact opposite thing of what they want it to do, and that's almost what happens here in this story. It all could have gone horribly wrong for Naomi, and she could have lost the very thing that she was looking for, which was redemption and restoration. Number two, what else do we see in this story? Well, we see that not only is Naomi human and sinful and broken, but we see the same thing actually with Ruth. Listen to this uh, what I'm going to read here in a moment. Essentially, I'm going to say that Ruth's desire to please, honor, and obey Naomi, which is a good thing, but it leads her into a very dangerous and very unwise situation. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you're a guardian redeemer of our family. That's a way in which she was saying, I want you to marry me. I want you to redeem me. That's an appropriate a request to be made here. Now, what's interesting about this passage, um, particularly this little section about Ruth, is we already know that Ruth is, is honorable and that she's good and that she's loyal, right? We know that. In fact, we know it all the way back from Ruth chapter 1. If you remember in Ruth chapter 1, the way that she speaks to Naomi when Naomi says, go back home, get married, start a new life. And Ruth replies by saying, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. She's loyal and she's very, very faithful. Again, the problem is that an idol can be anytime we take something that's good but we make it an ultimate thing. It's actually possible to be so loyal to your family that you can actually be disloyal to God. In fact, uh, Paul Koistra was the president of Covenant Seminary um, right before I got to Covenant Seminary, now 20 years ago. And Paul Koistra um, was uh, a professional psychologist and as well as a, a theologian. One of the things he used to say is he used to say, your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness. Your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness. What's the strength of Ruth here? The strength of Ruth is loyalty and faithfulness, right? It's just amazing that she's so loyal and that she's so faithful. The danger, however, is that she can be so faithful and so loyal to Naomi that she might actually be unfaithful to God. Now, again, let me make it really clear that Ruth is great. I mean, she really is wonderful. There's nothing wrong with her wanting to honor Naomi. There's nothing wrong with her wanting to be loyal to Naomi. It's wonderful. But when that desire outweighs her desire or our desire to obey God, then that's when it becomes a sin. And it's at this point that we need to hear the words of Peter to the high priest in Acts chapter 5, where he says, we must obey God rather than men. Okay? 
And so in the same way that some of you in this room can identify with desiring to kind of control things uh, in order to save yourself, some of you can identify with this desire to want to please people in order to save yourself, right? I at least know one person in the room can because he's standing up on stage right now. But the danger of wanting to be loyal and faithful to other people is that sometimes you do it so much, you're so faithful to other people, you want to please them so much that that actually outweighs your desire to please God. And it's really a way of saving yourself. It's a way of making yourself feel okay. It's a a way of making yourself feel safe. The problem is that if you're a people pleaser, and if you are so worried about pleasing other people, guess what? I don't know how many people are in the room this morning, but I can't please you all. And if I try to please you all, A, I'm going to be unfaithful to God in the process, and B, it's just impossible. And so what's going to happen is that chaos is actually going to ensue. If I, if I tell all of you what I hope you want to hear, what I think you want to hear, and I try to promise it and give it, it's going to lead to chaos. The same thing that happens when you try to have control, it ultimately leads to chaos. When you try to please everyone, it leads to chaos. Last thing we see in this story. Last thing we see in this story is that Boaz, I'm going to argue, that his passivity places both Naomi and Ruth in this situation to begin with, that it puts them in a dangerous situation. Listen to verses 10 through 13. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. In other words, your, your choice to pursue me as a kinsman redeemer, even though I'm a generation older than you, uh, is, is greater than your faithfulness to, to Naomi, right? It's, it's wonderful that you've done this. He's flattered. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Now, in the same way that I pointed out that Ruth Ruth is really awesome, I mean, she really is. She's loyal. She's wonderful. She's faithful. You, you can't really read the story without seeing that. We would all like to be friends with Ruth. Those of us who are men would be like, man, I'd love to marry somebody like Ruth. That's great. You know, in the same way, Boaz is an honorable guy. He's a great guy. In fact, he's, he's faced with this situation on the threshing floor in the evening, in the darkness of having this woman whoop, show up at his feet, right? He, he, his options of negative things he could have done were many. He could have decided to go through what, with what we think maybe Naomi's plan was, or he could have chosen to get angry and to have condemned Ruth and basically ostracized her publicly. He could have gone either of those routes, but instead what Boaz does is he's, he's gracious to her instead. He, he essentially says, I'm really flattered that you're here. Thank you for being willing to pursue me. I like that. Um, I know... However, I know that you're a noble woman. And not only do I know that you're a noble woman, but all these other people know that you're noble and that you're good as well. He even goes so far as to say, I'll do the thing you're asking me to do. In other words, I'll make sure that somebody redeems you. Whether it's the guy who's closer, a closer redeemer to you, or if it's me, I'll make sure that it happens. Now, let me ask you this, or I'll just tell you this. What stands out to me in this little section of verses 10 through 13 is... If, if Boaz already knew that he was a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, and if he even knew that there was this other guy who was a closer kinsman redeemer, then why did it take this sort of bizarre midnight in the darkness potential situation in order to cause him 
to act, right? Like, why did he wait? If he knew that it was either his job or this other person's job to take care of these, these women, these widows, then why didn't he act sooner? Now, what's interesting is there are, other, there are two other passages that precede the story of Ruth. They're both in Genesis. One's in Genesis 18. It tells the story of Lot and his daughters. And Genesis 38, which tells the story of, of uh, Tamar and Judah. And in both of those cases, these husbands, these men, are supposed to act in such a way as to redeem these women that uh, need to be redeemed. And in each case, they withdraw. In each case, they're passive. Rather than entering into the situation and rescuing and redeeming, they actually pull away in a desire to sort of preserve the peace, right? In order to sort of stay away from the chaos, in order maybe to preserve uh, the simplicity and the complacency of their life. In fact, one of the things that's interesting is Dan Allender and uh, Dr. Cofield, who came and spoke to us a, uh, a month and a half or so ago, have both argued, and I've read this in other places from other theologians as well, that essentially what they've argued is that a man's, one of a man's typical sins is passivity. One of a, a male, as male, part of our typical sin is to withdraw from these situations, to withdraw from chaos, right? And what we're doing when we withdraw from the chaos of our family life or we withdraw from the chaos of some other aspect of our world is we kind of say, Maybe it'll just get better without us, you know? You know, maybe somebody else will take care of it, right? And some of the women in this room who are married, you absolutely know what we're talking about because some of you women in this room have been living with passive husbands who have withdrawn from the chaos of your children or who have maybe withdrawn from the chaos of your own life. Instead of moving towards you in intimacy, they've sort of withdrawn because they're scared of the chaos that exists in real relationships and fundamentally, what people who take control are trying to do, what people who are people pleasers are trying to do, and put people who withdraw and are passive are trying to do, is they're basically just trying to save themselves. And so passivity is a very selfish way of basically saying, I'm just going to kind of pull back and avoid all of this complexity and all of this chaos. Can anybody in this room identify with that? Yeah, I bet you can. In the same way that you can identify with the control people. In the same way that some of the people who are people pleasers can identify. In the same way that some of you in here can definitely identify with Boaz. I think Boaz is simply sitting back and waiting for somebody else to step up to the plate. And it's a danger because it ultimately will actually lead to chaos. You want it to save you, but it's going to be the very thing that destroys you. Now let me call time out here for a second and say this. Some of you are sitting in this room this morning and you're going, I've always liked the story of Ruth. You know what I mean? Like, I've always liked it. Like, I, I wanted a women's Bible study with, like, a pink cover and art on the front. And I wanted it to be a, a love story. You know, and I, I love it. And BP, you're kind of ruining it for me. Right? My desire isn't to ruin it for you, but my, my desire is actually to deepen not only the story of Ruth for you, but to deepen the entire story of Scripture. Because as you and I both know, the best stories are the ones that are actually filled with chaos. The best stories are actually, the best love stories are the ones that are actually filled with brokenness. And that's exactly what this story is. It's filled with humanity. It's filled with, with brokenness, right? Naomi isn't some wise and benevolent mother-in-law. She's a fearful, desperate woman who longs for security and redemption and is willing to do almost anything to get it, right? Similarly, Ruth isn't a pure heroine. She's torn between faithfulness to Naomi and faithfulness to God, just like we're torn between being faithful to those we love and faithful to God. 
And Boaz, like Ruth, isn't a pure hero either. He wants peace and comfort and maybe lack of complexity in his life, so much so that he's willing to simply withdraw in order to avoid a situation that actually desperately needs his engagement, right? The situation needs him to move into it. In the words of the human league, they're only human, right? They just really are, just like you are only human and I'm only human. Now, for those of you who've been in attendance at Seven Hills for a while now, you know that we try to always ask the question, where is Jesus? Because even Jesus says all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament is really all about me. And let me try to answer that question for you by saying this. Jesus, like Naomi, desires redemption, but instead of taking matters into his own hands, he actually submits himself to God's plan, even though it leads him into the chaos of the cross and of death. Does that make sense? Right? He, he, he desires redemption too, but instead of taking control, he submits himself to God's plan. Jesus, like Ruth, desires to be faithful to his people and to God at the same time, but he chooses fidelity to God, knowing full well that his people will actually hate him for that very thing, but knowing that in the end, it's his faithfulness to his father that is exactly what they needed most, right? And then finally, Jesus is also like Boaz. He desires peace, but instead of avoiding chaos or even reticently being drawn into that chaos, Jesus willingly, knowingly, lovingly, voluntarily, and courageously enters into the chaos of humanity as, of all things, a human being in order to redeem us. Does that make sense? Like that's, that's the story not only of Ruth, it's the story of all of Scripture. For those of you who have ever wondered why it is that David takes such a black eye in Scripture, it's because the point of Scripture isn't to make a hero out of David, it's to make a hero out of Jesus. You know, for those of you who have wondered why it is that Moses gets such a black eye in Scripture, it's because the goal of Scripture isn't to make Moses a hero, it's to make us long for Jesus, our ultimate Redeemer, the one who ultimately is the only one that can restore us and rescue us and save us from the chaos of our lives. He is our true Redeemer. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the message of the gospel that uh, we cannot save ourselves either through control or through trying to uh, please other people or even through avoiding chaos. But Father, salvation comes as we trust in your son, Jesus. He's our hero. And so Father, I would ask this morning that you would give us your Holy Spirit and that through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and the scripture that we expose ourselves to and even the way in which we as brothers and sisters in Christ talk to one another and with other people outside the church, that we would uh, over and over again proclaim that, uh, that our only hope is found in our perfect Redeemer, our perfect hero and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen.